continue where we stopped the other day. Okay, we are going to be talking now about nephrolithiasis. Okay, we are going to, since you have the test, okay, next week, and there is a quiz on this weekend if everybody can do it, okay. Uh, we are going to be briefly talking again about the pathophysiology. We are not supposed to talk about pathophysiology in clinical medicine, but maybe it's uh, useful, okay, this time. Okay, but then start to understand the management. Okay, uh, about nephrolithiasis, there are two types of management. Okay, one of them is in the emergency room when the patients have the acute pain, the renal colic. That will depend on different things, the size, the degree of pain, the different symptoms that the patients have. But there is a very important treatment that is prevent that patient has more kidney stones in the future. So prevention. So they don't go through that uh, very painful event anymore, if possible. Okay, uh, kidney stones, uh, the proper name, medically speaking, is nephrolithiasis. Stones may form in the kidneys or also may form in the bladder. Okay, the, sometimes there are little stones in the bladders that even may produce obstruction. Okay, so, but normally we talk about the nephrolithiasis when they form in the kidneys at the level of the renal pelvis. Sometimes they are small and they travel down the ureter, producing very painful events. Sometimes they are huge, so they don't uh, fit into the ureter, and may they stay there in the pelvis. Okay, normally the formation of these stones uh, will be due to the precipitation and crystallization of different salts, proteins, different substances, may contain different uh, things like bilirubin, they contain different uh, components, proteins of different types, depending on the patient. It's a condition that is more common in males. Okay, and there is a very, very high rate of recurrence in five years. Okay? You're going to see that it's uh, difficult sometimes to keep the diet and the hydration level and the physical activity. And some patients have some metabolic disorders that predispose them to the formation of stones or have other conditions like for example, uh, inflammatory bowel disease or other, or cystic fibrosis or anything that predisposes people to malabsorption. Okay, the painful event is gonna be produced when there is a distension, okay, dilatation of the uh, ureters of these, uh, of the ureters or because of the stretching, the spasm of the muscles, okay, that produces ischemia. And depending on the location of the stone, it's gonna produce different uh, types of pain, okay, or location of the pain in different places. Remember the risk factors, fluid intake, okay, patients that drink lots of fluid and are physically active are less likely to develop these stones. Now, there is the pathogenesis summarized. Uh, doesn't matter what is the type of stone. There is a general pathogenesis here, supersaturation of the urine with these salts. Okay, that they precipitate, normally there has to be something that acts as a nucleus for these stones uh, to form. Okay, they crystallize around this nucleus, aggregate there. And there is another factor, and it's the absence of a protein, or low level of a protein that is a stone inhibitor. It's called tam Horsfall protein. Okay, there are other inhibitors, for example, citrate. Any kind of citrate, so if we have a in the diet, lots of uh, citrus fruit, 
Okay, that is a good idea to inhibit the formation of stones. Uh, one way of uh, preventing stones is having lemon juice, for example. Now, it has to be taken several times per day, okay, because our kidneys uh, clear all this citric acid from the urine every six hours, so we should be having this citric juice all the time. But it's complicated no, to keep all the time doing that. And it also depends on the type of stones, okay, because some stones are more likely to form with an acidic pH of the urine, some other stones with an alkaline pH. So it will depend. We don't want to have a very acidic urine if, for example, we have uh, uric acid stones, okay, or other stones like cysteine that form in an acidic urine. Okay, magnesium pyrophosphate, but these are things that we are not going to be taking to prevent stone formation. So alkaline urine favors calcium stone formations. Uric acid stones are favored by an acidic urine. So modifying the pH of the urine is a good idea to prevent the formation of these stones. And they are also more common in people who have different types of anatomical abnormalities, okay, like scarring, strictures at different levels in the ureter. Okay, because that will prevent the flushing of small crystals. Once you have a small crystal, this small crystal can act as a nucleus or for the aggregation of more and more and more crystals until we have a big stone. So there are different types. Notice that the most common is the calcium stone. Okay, within the calcium stones, we have calcium oxalate or calcium phosphate. Okay, so most of these stones are going to be made of calcium oxalate. Then we have the uric acid stones, uh, struvite stones that are also called infection or infectious stones, people who have infection with these uh, uh, types of bacteria, uh, ureas positive organisms that produce a very alkaline pH, Pseudomonas, Klebsiella, Proteus. And then we have the cysteine stones uh, that are due to genetic defects, okay? people who don't process properly these amino acids cysteine or xanthine, which are extremely rare, and they are going to have stones as a result of these. These appear in kids, for example. And notice that also the low urine pH favors the formation of these stones. Now let's try to focus on the uh, important aspects, okay, and what is important about the management or the prevention of these stones, because when someone has a renal colic, simply we need to uh, try to relieve the pain. And then depending on the type of stone, the size, we are going to decide if doing surgical treatment or not, different types of intervention. Okay, but for us, if we are going to work in the primary care, okay, the prevention is, is going to be very important, even for your families or your friends or, or maybe yourselves, if, if you have had any uh, type of kidney stones, is going to be very helpful to know exactly what to do, what not to do. Okay, there are different factors that favor the formation of calcium oxalate stones. For example, excessive calcium in the urine, excessive oxalate, okay, hyperoxaluria uh, will be present in people that have different types of malabsorption, chronic malabsorption, okay, because normally calcium will bind to fat in the GI tract. People with pancreatic insufficiency, biliary insufficiency, or inflammatory bowel disease, or any other celiac disease, for example, 
who have malabsorption, fat is not absorbed, and the fat takes the calcium with it. Okay, so that will leave a lot of oxalate free to be absorbed. This excess oxalate in the blood is going to be eliminated in the urine, and that oxalate in the urine will bind to the urinary calcium, forming stones. Okay, normally if we don't have any malabsorption, the oxalate that we consume with the diet will bind to calcium, and the calcium oxalate will go away with the feces. Okay, but if we eliminate the calcium and the oxalate doesn't find any, anything to bind, it's going to be absorbed. So the patients, uh, there is a lot of debate about what to do, no? and the treatment is going to be specific for every patient. Okay, the general recommendation is do not limit calcium. Okay, so in, some, uh, in some guidelines, they are going to tell you increase calcium. Okay, but uh, if you want to be more conservative and choose something that applies to everyone, at least do not limit calcium which is difficult to do because patients are going to tell you, but these are calcium stones. Uh, sh should I stop eating calcium? No, no. If you eat a normal amount of calcium with the diet, continue doing that. Do not reduce the calcium. Now, should we increase the amount of calcium? Well, it depends on how much calcium patients have in the urine. Okay? If they have low calcium levels, we should increase the, the consumption of calcium. Okay? And if they have a normal calcium, we should not limit it, okay? but never decrease the calcium because then they are going to continue eating things that contain oxalate, which you are going to see that is very easy, peanuts, rhubarb, spinach, beets, chocolate, and there is a long list there. And they are going to have a lot of oxalate that is going to bind to calcium. Okay, Remember, we have lots of calcium in the body, in the bones, different places. We are constantly eliminating calcium, Okay, so that oxalate is going to bind to calcium. So if the calcium in the urine is low or in the low level, it's a good idea to increase the calcium consumption, okay? Because that calcium will bind to oxalate in the gut, okay? And it's gonna uh, prevent the absorption of oxalate. Now, another risk is the hypercalciuria. Okay, what to do when patients have elevated calcium levels in the urine? Okay, in this case, of course, we are not going to increase the amount of calcium in the diet. We have to try to reduce the amount of calcium in the urine. Okay, so for that we can use thiazides. Okay, thiazides prevent the secretion of calcium in the urine. And we have to be careful. Never give thiazides to a patient that has hypercalcemia. Mm -hmm. So for example, we have to make sure if your patient has hypercalciuria, we have to make sure that they don't have a hyperparathyroidism. Okay, because we, if we give thiazides to these patients, we are going to make worse the hypercalcemia. Okay, in that case, the kidney stone is not the priority. Okay, we don't want to make the situation worse. Then another uh, factor is hypocytraturia. Okay, this is a, a, an inhibitor of the formation of these calcium oxalate stones because citric acid okay, binds to calcium inhibiting the formation of oxalate stones. Okay. You can use lemon juice, potassium citrate. In the case, the, it's difficult sometimes to make patients, for example, have lemon juice four times per day. Maybe someone can do that a couple of days, but 
not as a, something that you do daily for all of your life. So potassium citrate that you take once per day only, okay, is gonna be enough. Okay, there you have how they look like. Mm-hmm. And we have this true bite. Okay, it produces associated with infections with uh, this type of bacteria. When you have to decide what is the best management, okay, in the case uh, of vignettes, remember it's very important to uh, target always uh, what is the etiology behind the stones. Okay, in this case, it's gonna be the treatment of the urinary infection and the prevention of having more urinary tract infections. Okay, these are uh, stones composed of magnesium. These stones tend to be very soft. Even though they are huge, they occupy almost the entire uh, renal pelvis and calluses. They don't tend to produce too much pain because they are soft and the urine can flow easily. So they, it doesn't produce uh, too much obstruction there. So treating the infection is the most important thing here. And of course, if there is a huge uh, calculus, this Stockholm calculi that has to be removed from there. Look how these uh, calculi look like. The exact shape is like a cast of the renal pelvis and the calluses. And this is thing, remembering kids, okay, these are uh, genetic conditions, autosomal recessive conditions, okay, that maybe they don't have any family history, but they are gonna have large calculi exactly like the ones we saw before, Stockholm calculi, okay, that appear in the childhood or, or adolescence. Okay, the treatment for this is simply try to alkalinize, make the urine more alkaline, okay, to increase the solubility of the, of the stones. There are other med medications like penicillamine or captopril, okay, that reduce the cysteine excretion but increasing the alkalinity of the urine, okay, is a great idea. Uric acid stones, uh, there are stones that have a mixed composition, okay, so we're gonna be talking more about this, uh, when we talk more about the management of this. Okay, they, they are not made only of uric acid, they are calcium stones that contain uric acid. Okay, so there is a combination of calcium and uric acid there. Okay, um, one of the factors for the development of this stone is for people who have elevated uric acid in the blood, but there is no correlation. Uh, when someone has hyperuricemia, even if they have gout, they, they not necessarily will have uric acid stones. Okay, only 10 to 15% of the patients with, with, with gout will develop uh, uric acid stones because the most important risk factor is hyperuricosuria. Okay, the elevated level of uric acid in the urine, not in the blood. Okay. Of course, we have to treat hyperuricemia, okay, for the reasons that it has to be treated because it will produce uh, cardiovascular problems, bone marrow problems, it affects the platelets, okay, but not exactly because of the prevention of uric acid stones. So we have to target more the hyperuricosuria, the one in the urine, rather than focus on the one in the blood for the purpose of preventing the formation of these stones. So alkalinization, okay, is a 
is a good way, exactly as with, with the cysteine stones. And there are medications, allopurinol, for example, that reduces the, excre the excretion of uric acid okay, in, the, in the urine. And we have to avoid medications like probenecid, okay, because it increases the uric acid excretion. Look how different they, uh, they look. These are very sharp. So imagine these stones against the ureter with these sharp edges. You compare them with the stones that are made of calcium phosphate oxalate. They are smooth, so they don't tend to produce too much mechanical trauma as the, as the uric acid stones do. So talking about the Clinical presentation, okay, this is general for all the stones. Okay, when they produce pain, when they produce symptoms, it will produce a pain that is described as from moderate to severe, generally severe, depending on where the stone is located, it's gonna produce more flank pain, or sometimes a pain that radiates uh, to the groin, okay, when the stones are located more distally in the ureter. Okay, as we said before, because of the obstruction, the ureter smooth muscle is trying to get rid of that stone, stretching, spasm, ischemia of the, of the smooth muscle there. Okay, notice that when, they, when we have lower uh, stones located in the distal ureter, people may have also symptoms that are characteristic of lower urinary uh, infections, okay, so related to the urination. There can be hematuria, okay, macroscopic or microscopic, depending on the damage that the stone has done. Okay, and sometimes uh, there can be a real uh, obstructive problem because you mind someone has a kidney stone, okay, and they only have one working kidney. Okay, some people anatomically may have two kidneys, but sometimes one of them is not working. Okay, and may, they may realize this when they are gonna a donate a kidney, or when they develop a unilateral stone, okay, in the in the kidney that is working, that they develop an acute kidney injury, okay, because in regularly if we have an obstruction in one kidney and the other is working, we are going to simply have the pain, but the other kidney is going to be doing the job of the kidney that is not producing urine in that moment. So this may be also associated with nausea, vomiting. Okay, and the management uh, of these acute episodes will depend on the size, for example. Typically, the small stones, less than five millimeters, tend to pass spontaneously, okay, with no problems. Stones that are from five to seven also may pass, but this is a bit more painful. Okay, and then we have the, the, the large stones, more than one centimeter. These are not likely to pass. Okay, and they are gonna receive different types of treatment. Okay, sometimes we have to help the stones with fluids, okay, with uh, medications that allow the expulsion of these stones, sometimes with uh, external, like tautripsy, okay, which is applying energy from outside to break down, to, to fragment the stones, and then wait for these fragments to be eliminated. Or sometimes surgery, okay, different types of surgical interventions. Okay, there you have the different types of pain, okay, that patients may have. 
and the stones are located in the upper part, okay, in the proximal part of the ureter. It will produce this flank pain, costovertebral angle pain, but it's not going to get into the groin. When it's located in the ureter, it's going to uh, produce the pain, the typical pain radiating to the groin, genitalia. Now, talking about the management more specifically, one very important thing for the calcium stones is to limit the sodium intake. Okay, if we take excess sodium, okay, our kidneys are going to eliminate more sodium, and that is going to uh, impair the reabsorption of calcium, so there is going to be more calcium in the urine. And now that I talk about sodium, I remember one question that I saw some time ago in one of these question banks for the, don't remember if it was the PANS or USMLE, and the question was describing a patient with recurrent kidney stones, and the question asked, which is the most important thing to prevent uh, calcium stones? And the options were limit sodium, limit calcium, limit oxalate, or maybe uh, drinking water, and the answer was sodium, limit sodium. Because it is proven that it's the most effective uh, of, if you have to choose, mind your patient tells you, oh, no, I'm not gonna do all that. Okay, can be limit, uh, limiting uh, calcium, limiting oxalate, limiting sodium, drinking more water, exercising, I can be do, doing all those things, but just limit sodium, okay? That is the most effective thing. Now, how do we know if they are taking excessive sodium? Sometimes we take sodium and we don't know. Okay, or at least we know, but there are people who don't know. And I, I have cases of people that say, I don't, I, I make, I, I cook and I don't put salt. Yeah, but they put different things on the food, okay, that contain lots of sodium. So, for example, if you, do a 24-hour urinary sodium level. If it's more than 150 millimoles per day, that indicates that the patients are taking more than that amount. Uh, proteins should be also limited. As you see there, not too much. One gram of protein per kilogram of body weight per day, that is the normal recommendation. Okay, for adults, the normal recommendation of protein is from one to 1.5 grams. So they are taking in the lower, lower limit of proteins. How do we know if they are taking more urinary sulfate? Okay, more than 20 milligrams per meal equivalence per day is that they are taking a lot more. Okay, if we increase the protein load that we eat, okay, the body is gonna eliminate what we don't need. Okay, they are gonna they have an acidic urine, they are gonna have an increased calcium oxalate and uric acid excretion and that's gonna decrease the citrate excretion, so facilitates uh, the formation of a stone. Okay, don't restrict calcium or increase calcium if the urinary calcium is low, in the case of the calcium oxalate stone, no, not the calcium phosphate. Okay, that increase, uh, increase or uh, calcium is for the calcium oxalate stones. But in any case, we are gonna restrict the calcium. Now, thiazide, remember, if there is a hypercalciuria, uh, okay, excluding the hyperparathyroidism, 
And there are some choices. And I want you to see why we make the choices. Why we consider a drug the first line treatment. Okay, one of the most important things besides effectiveness is if the patients are gonna be compliant with them. Okay, if someone has a bacterial infection and we tell them you have to take this antibiotic three times per day during five days, that's okay. Five days is not a problem. But when we tell them you have to take this medication forever, we have to make sure that they are gonna take it. For example, chlorthalidone in dapamide are the first line in this case because they take only one per day. Okay, we could use hydrochlorothiazide, but that has to be administered twice per day. Okay, so maybe we use hydrochlorothiazide in the patient that is already taking it. And maybe we simply, okay, we are gonna add one in the night or we are gonna do some modification here so we don't change to another medication. Now, what about the uric acid? Okay, we have to prevent or reduce the levels of uric acid in the urine. Okay, when we say there is hyperuricosuria, when people eliminate more than 800 milligrams, males or 750 milligrams for females per day. Okay, this can be secondary to dietary excesses, for example, purines present in seafood, Okay, present uh, excess of purines in liver, seafood, brain, etc. Or excess proteins, animal proteins. But also, in some small proportion of the patients, the elevated uric acid may be due to endogenous metabolism defects. Okay, when there is excess uric acid, okay, and if the pH of the urine is low, okay, we are going to have the formation of uric acid stones but if the pH of the urine is elevated, okay, they are gonna have the formation of calcium stones, okay, because of the accumulation of this monosodium urate in the stone. So notice that depending on the pH of the urine, there can be different types of stones. So notice that uh, restriction, dietary restriction is important. It's gonna be beneficial for up to 85% of the patients. And we are gonna alkalinize the urine, for example, with uh, potassium citrate, that is at the same time an inhibitor of the stone formation, or using sodium bicarbonate. Okay, sodium bicarbonate, we have to be careful. Okay, it's very difficult to, uh, it's very easy to take more than the one that is indicated. Now, allopurinol. What about allopurinol? Should we give this to every patient? Well, that is not the first-line treatment. First-line treatment here is alkalinization of the urine. And of course, dietary restriction, they have to be together. Allopurinol is gonna be given to those that have hyperuricosuria, have normal calcium levels, and have normal calcium in the urine, and they have recurrent, okay, uh, stones, despite adequate alkalinization of the urine. Okay, so for patients that don't respond to treatment, it's for those that we are gonna be using the allopurinol. Did I make a table with this thing? I don't remember. No, it's 
I don't remember if I made the table. Oh, no. maybe it's another place. Or maybe I forgot to add it there. Now, there are some Swear that I made a table with a summary of all the kidney stones, and I'm wondering if I put the correct PowerPoint there. So, there are a couple more uh, of other conditions that we have to cover uh, because they have to be also considered when you have a patient. Okay, that has uh, flank pain. Okay, one of them is autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. Okay, that is a condition that is due to some mutation. Okay, there are some genes. That is that the names are easy to remember. Polycystic kidney disease one and two. Okay, these are conditions that affect the kidney mainly. Okay, producing multiple cysts in the kidneys. But they are systemic disorders. They affect many different organs. Okay, we are going to see formation of cysts in the kidneys. Kidneys enlarge a lot, but other organs as well, the liver, the pancreas, spleen. Because the name says it's autosomal dominant, and the patients, okay, up to half of them are going to require renal replacement therapy, dialysis or transplant, by the age of uh, 60 years of age. Okay, the more common of these manifest uh, mutations is the PKD1. Okay, and it's more severe. And these patients are going to have a gradual kidney growth. Okay, there are many cysts. There is a massive kidney enlargement that will lead to a loss of kidney function because these cysts are compressing the healthy part of the kidney. Okay, and they represent up to 10% of the patients that are on dialysis. Most of the patients on dialysis are because of diabetes, but a small percentage are as a result of this condition. That is how many carriers there are, one per 100 to 1,000 people. And if we don't know, okay, someone doesn't know they are carriers of this, because remember, in many of these cases, there is no family history, so we don't suspect. Someone may marry another person that also is a carrier, and they might have most cases, carriers, you know, they have to be the two alleles together to produce a person. So they are going to have a massive kidney enlargement, okay? One of the causes of flank pain, kidney stones, recurrent infections, and also all of the manifestations of uh, kidney dysfunction like hypertension, hematuria, okay, proteinuria. The more proteinuria they have, the greater the risk for uh, having end-stage renal disease. And remember, this may affect every other organ, okay? Uh, they may present with cysts in the pancreas, liver, spleen, but also in the thyroid, different other organs, and even in the arachnoid. And one of the risks they have is 
the formation of intracranial aneurysms. Okay, 50% of them are going to rupture. So that information, uh, sometimes you, you could, for example, uh, using this information, pretend that you have to create a multiple choice question. And it's very simple to create a vignette okay, with these diseases. Okay, patients that present because of hematuria and proteinuria and flank pain, ultrasound shows multiple cysts in the bilaterally in the kidneys and also cysts in the liver or in the pancreas. Okay, which of the following is a potential complication or is a risk uh, or which of the following are these patients at risk of? Intracranial hemorrhage is one of them, or the more, more severe ones that may appear, besides the end-stage renal disease. This is a picture that shows okay, how this looks like. And just imagine what's left there of the kidney function. That? Notice that the liver is affected, okay? The liver, okay, the kidneys, it's just not everything is not kidney. The upper part is the, the liver on the right side. See that? Mm -hmm. And then I put this here. Uh, I don't think you should pay too much attention to this because this is not even in the in the pan's objectives. But simply, if there is a, a disease that looks similar, why not to look at this? Okay, this is a condition that appears in the infancy, not in adults as the autosomal dominant. Okay, and this produces more tubular dilation. Okay, more than. The, the, the big cysts that appear in the in the autosomal dominant. Okay, may affect also the liver or the organs. This is very similar, but this is a different mutation. Okay. Just for you to see what is the difference. Notice that in the adult, uh, in the autosomal dominant, okay, we have many uh, different uh, cysts around these uh, tubules, etc. Notice that the autosomal uh, uh, recessive is more the collecting duct, the one that is dilated. Just for you to see the difference. Don't worry too much about that. And now I'm very sure that I put here the wrong PowerPoint <laughs> because that wasn't what I remember I fixed that. So I have to change the PowerPoint later. Yeah, and there is some missing information there. Why that happens? Mm -hmm. I know why that happens. When there is an, when for some reason they, there is no synchronization, okay, between the Dropbox here and the Dropbox at home, <laughs> for some reason. Now, bladder cancer in. It's not something that typically presents with flank pain, but might present, okay? This is a cancer that uh, almost nobody talks about it, 
Okay, when we have a patient that has, a, for example, urinary tract obstruction, okay, we always think in benign prostatic hypertrophy or prostate cancer or other things. And notice that this is 1% of, of all cancers. Okay, so it's not a small amount of people. Okay, there are different types. The most common is the transitional cell carcinoma. It tends to appear lateral, posterior walls of the bladder. Okay, and there are some risk factors. Most of them are exposures to chemicals. Smoking, for example. Okay, phenacetine, different dyes, arsenic. Okay, uh, chemicals that may be present in beer, like nitrosamines. Not only in beer, in many different foods, uh, there are nitrosamines, all of these cured uh, food, ham, etc. Some infections, schizostoma, hematobium. And there is an increased prevalence, for example, in truck drivers, long-haul truck drivers. Okay, why is that? Maybe because they don't urinate so frequently, and their diet is not very good, or they are exposed to chemicals that they either transport or some other reason. Okay, people who urinate more frequently have a lower risk. It typically presents with hematuria that is painless. Okay, that's important to distinguish from other types of hematuria as a result of infection or trauma or other things. And different uh, signs like this. Okay, so most important thing there is the painless hematuria, which is a sign of Cancer, not, not only bladder cancer, also when there is a kidney cancer, there may, may be a painless hematuria as well. Of course, it depends on how much damage the, the tumor is doing at the level of the kidney. Simply to differentiate this hematuria from the infectious inflammatory or traumatic type hematuria that is going to be painful. And I think you have the, the answers for this there. Okay, yeah. Do you? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. So, and then you have a lot of questions in the practice test, so we are going to have a, a break, okay? Let's have a break. This one for the three. So, on the two. Okay. Okay, let's, let's move to the next part. We are losing people here. We're abducted by... <laughs> So, the past presentation uh, was trying to focus on conditions that produce flank pain. Okay, now 
recording again, sir? Okay. Now we are going to move to a set of conditions that may produce plant pain, okay? But the most important thing is going to be hematuria and proteinuria. Okay, remember that in any case, when we have hematuria, we have to rule out infections. Okay, we have to rule out cancers, for example. As we mentioned before, that produce a painless hematuria. Okay, and we are going to try to know how to approach the patient that has hematuria, has proteinuria, trying to remember the basics that we learned at the beginning about how to interpret a urinalysis, trying to put things together. Okay, so there we have different uh, conditions that may present with hematuria different types. Okay, we have to separate the different causes of hematuria into glomerular or non-glomerular conditions. Okay, notice in the non-glomerular, there are causes like fever exercise, simply blood from the menstruation, okay, or kidney stones or infectious processes, cancer, okay, trauma or instrument, as a result of instrumentation or coagulation disorders. So that is our differential. Okay, remember when you have your patient, what is the chief complaint? It's hematuria, try to put it in a box. Is glomerular or non-glomerular? Okay, most cases that you're going to have is a non-glomerular hematuria. Okay, but of course we have to think about potential causes. Okay, and there you have some important ones. Notice that I put some in bold letters. Are the ones that we are going to be covering more in detail. Okay, different types of necropathies, glomerulonephritis, the nephritic syndrome type of diseases. Okay, how we evaluate a patient. I present, my urine is red, my urine is brown, my urine is dark. Okay, well, the first thing that we do is a urinalysis, of course. We are going to do the deep stick. Remember, we can have false positive, false negatives there. Okay, because can be, can test positive for blood, but actually may not be any blood there. Okay, we are going to do the urinalysis, as we learned the other day, looking for different things. For example, presence of nitrates. Nitrites tells us infection. Leukocytes don't tell us that there is an infection. Nitrites do, and more specific for like bacteria. Okay, of course, we are going to look at the BUN creatinine, uh, different types of imaging studies if necessary. Okay, uh, we are going to start with the more affordable, less invasive ones, ultrasound, then CT scan, then MRI, if necessary. Okay, as this is exactly what we uh, studied the other day. And then there are other tests, for example, cystoscopy. Okay, cystoscopy is performed by a urologist. Of course, you don't do a cystoscopy if there is an infection. You don't want to be manipulating an infected urethra or bladder with a cystoscope. Okay, it's done, not very commonly, but if you have a negative CT scan, negative ultrasound, negative imaging, we still need to find what is the cause. For example, if there is a small carcinoma, okay, in the bladder, okay, or simply inflammation, or sometimes the cystoscopy can be used to remove a stone, okay. Another test is cytology of the urine, looking for cancer cells. But uh, the urine cytology may be negative, simply because we didn't collect any cancer cell in that sample. And we are not going to be repeating the cytology until we find one. 
Okay, so it's not a substitute for a cystoscopy. It's better to have a specialist looking inside the bladder and taking a sample from something that looks not very good. And then we have the biopsy. We already talked about the biopsy the other day. This has to be done by a nephrologist, okay, or some interventional radiologist. It's missing the radiologist there. Okay, that is the gold standard when someone has a glomerulonephritis, either nephritic or nephrotic syndrome, as you're going to see when we develop the differential, that only by doing a biopsy we can be sure of what the patient has. Because clinically, they look the same. Okay? So when you do the urinalysis, when you do the imaging studies, sometimes the only thing that you can do is a biopsy. For example, if you see these morphic red blood cells or red blood cell casts, that tells you there is a glomerular disease. Okay? Biopsies, remember, have different complications, bleeding. Okay? And there are differences in the light microscopy and immunofluorescence findings, and sometimes in electron microscopy that are the only thing that tells us what the disease uh, could be. Okay, for us, we are going to focus on the immunofluorescence findings, okay, to try to establish or try to have an idea. Okay, here we have like a protocol. For example, your patient has a red urine or a brown urine. Okay, what we do, okay, we are going to centrifuge the urine, we are going to obtain a sediment, and we are going to obtain a supernatant, so that can be also called plasma, plasma in the urine, but the, the part that is liquid, and the not solid one. Now, if the sediment is red, that is hematuria, okay, if the supernatant is red, now we have to do a deep stick analysis of that supernatant. Okay, if it's negative for blood, notice how many things can be. For example, people taking lots of bits in the food, bituria. Mm -hmm. yeah. Look at what name they found, bituria. <laughs> taking phen phenazopiridines, which is an analgesic for cystitis, okay, or porphyria, or other conditions that have nothing to do with blood. Now, that dipstick in the supernatant is positive for blood. Remember, it's a dipstick analysis. If the supernatant is clear, that is likely to be myoglobinuria. And if it's red, that is likely hemoglobinuria. Just simply for you to understand how it works at the level of doing a differential with the sample of urine. And there you have some other causes of negative or heme-negative red urine. It's not only myoglobinuria, it's not only rhabdomyolysis. Okay, notice that the dipstick can be po uh, falsely positive with these medications. Okay, not only phenazopiridine, also doxorubicin, chloroquine, ibuprofen may give you a false uh, positive for, a, for blood dipstick or, and, and even red urine. And then we have some foods, not only bits, some metabolized bile, melanin, porphyrin, different things. Okay, so it's very easy to have a wrong ideas. That's why we have to investigate our patients so well. There you have other causes of hematuria divided by age on the right and anatomically. Okay, for example, renal, ureter, bladder, prostate, urethra. Notice how 
huge is the differential diagnosis of a simple finding like hematuria. Okay, in the renal you have some benign or malignant conditions. You have different types of structural diseases. You have the glomerulonephritis. This is not for memorization, simply for you to notice how well we have to investigate patients. That is the mimics of hematuria, menstruation, pigments, bits, medications, as we saw before. Okay, we have their kidney stones, malignancies, structure, strictures in the ureter, malignancies in the bladder, cancer in the prostate, infections, or the strictures as well, trauma in the urethra. Now, what about the age? What is the difference between uh, young people and older people? In blue, you have the most common ones. Okay, there are benign causes of hematuria, transient hematuria that we may find in any person, and we never find the reason. Okay, notice that urinary tract infections are one of the most common across the entire lifespan. Now, after the age of 20, stones are the most common cause, together with the urinary tract infections. Of course, if you have to choose, men will have more stones, females will have more UTIs. Then also other not so common causes like exercise, okay, trauma, endometriosis, some different types of hemoglobinopathies like sickle, sickle cell anemia. Notice that it's there too. Heterozygous and homozygous. Polycystic kidney disease is not very frequent, but also present there. And after the age of 40, notice that bladder cancer, kidney, and prostate cancer okay, are common. And then we have benign prostatic hypertrophy after the age of 50 something as a very common cause. Now, all the way down, you have intrinsic glomerular disease. Okay, intrinsic glomerular disease that may appear okay, from the age 10 to the age 7. That is that the ones you have on top are more transient. The ones you have below are more persistent proteinuria. Okay, so it's a diagram that tells you okay, what is most likely uh, what you're going to have in your patient depending on the age, and if it's tension, if it's persistent. And now, one of the first things that we have to do, remember, is to put the hematuria in one of the two buckets, glomerular or non-glomerular. For example, the color in the glomerular tends to be smoky brown, cola colored, maybe red. In the extra glomerular, tends to be red or pink. Now, what if it's red? Can be extra or intra, or, or, or glomerular. We have to look at the presence of clots. Are there clots that is more typical of the extra glomerular? But notice that it says maybe, not always we have clots. So if it's red and there are no clots, we are still in the same situation. We look at the proteinuria, less than 500 milligrams per day, that is likely extra glomerular. In the glomerular, maybe more than 500. Okay, so if it is less than 500, we are still in the same place. What about red blood cell morphology? It's normal, normal red blood cells in the extra glomerular, 
these morphic red blood cells and the presence of casts point toward the glomerular disease. Now, notice that says some may be present, so these things are not always going to be there. However, we expect at least to have one no? that tells us this is more glomerular. Now, how do we treat this patient? This is a general management, okay? When we study, we, we go to the different conditions, we are going to have more details. Okay, we are going to explain what is Alport syndrome, what is thin basement membrane. We already uh, covered polycystic kidney disease. Everything will depend on the renal function. Okay, we are going to simply monitor the renal function. These patients, for example, are known, are, are born with a genetic disorder. Okay, they have a defect in the collagen, and there is nothing that we can do to improve the collagen. So simply monitor the renal function and uh, refer to the nephrologist okay, when necessary. What about the post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis? Well, these people don't have any infection actively. They may ha have had the strep throat two weeks ago, and now they have a nephritic syndrome. Notice that we, there is nothing that we can do. Supportive care, unless we see any abnormality, any very severe dysfunction in the, in, in the kidneys. The same with IgA nephropathy, and we are going to go later to it, will depend on the degree of proteinuria and renal function. Okay, IgA nephropathy is very similar to post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. However, in these patients, the infection may be happening now. They may have the infection at the same time that they are having the nephritic syndrome, so of course treat the current infection. Okay, if they have a normal creatinine, if they have a minimal proteinuria, there is nothing that we are going to do, just wait. It is a self-limiting disease, it's a, something that resolves spontaneously. Now, if they have a worsening creatinine, persistent proteinuria, they are moving to a kidney damage, then we may use corticosteroids in these patients. That's the way we do the, the treatment, depends on how the patient is progressing. If they have lupus nephritis, well, this is something that we don't treat in primary care. Okay? We simply are going to look for expert opinion. And there are six types. So imagine that we have a patient that has lupus and, the, and presents with the nephritic syndrome. What are we going to do? Order a biopsy to see what type of lupus nephritis is, and then what? So, of course, a, a expert opinion. The same with nephrotic syndrome. Okay? This is something that we don't treat. Simply recognize what it is and where we have to refer these patients. Okay, this is the general management of the glomerular hematuria. Okay, and have clear what is the differential. Okay, there is a transient proteinuria, one of the types of a transient proteinuria or benign proteinuria is what we call orthostatic proteinuria. Okay, maybe due to urinary tract infections as well, or sometimes we don't know the cause. Okay, that is a, we have to make sure that the proteinuria is orthostatic. Okay, they have to be uh, lying down, okay, supine position during the entire night, and then we repeat the, the urinalysis. Okay, and the proteinuria has to be less than 50 milligrams. Okay, and it's rare in older, no, in older than 30. Okay, fever, exercise, other things 
they may produce a proteinuria, for example, vaginal, vaginal mucus or sperm cells, etc. Pregnancy may increase the proteins in the urine. Okay, that is a, there is a proteinuria that occurs due to overflow, excessive amount of proteins in the urine, like multiple myeloma, myoglobinuria, amyloidosis. Simply the, the, the kidney has no problem, but simply can't reabsorb, exactly as it happens with the glucose in diabetes. Now, when there is a persistent proteinuria, then we have to separate, okay, primary renal disease from secondary uh, renal disease. And of course, decide if they are more nephritic or nephrotic syndrome. Okay, the most common cause of proteinuria. Okay, the primary renal disease are glomerulonephritis, more of the nephrotic type. There can be also some tubular disorders drugs, uh, nephrotoxins, NSAIDs. And then we have the secondary, okay, that can be due to uh, diabetes nephropathy, different connective tissue diseases, like lupus, amyloidosis, etc., hypertension. And there are other tests that we have to do to our patients, okay, to classify them. Okay, here we have the classification of the proteinuria according to the amount. Okay, less than 150, from 150 to 3,000 milligrams or 3 grams, or more than 3.5 grams, which is the nephrotic range. Okay, notice that the nephritic range proteinuria is between 150 and milligrams and 3 grams. And also we have to look at the amount of albumin. How much of that protein is albumin? Okay, then we have the albuminuria, okay, which is very important together with the glomerular filtration rate for the prognosis okay, of the uh, morbidity, mortality in the patients with diabetes okay, or any type of chronic kidney disease. Now, these are other tests that we are going to do to our patients when we suspect, okay, nephritic, nephrotic syndrome to do a differential. So we are going to look for antibodies, okay, in the presence of, after a strep infection, anti-streptolysin O, anti-nuclear antibodies, looking for lupus nephritis, same with anti-DNA antibodies, complement levels. We are going to see how we use that. Okay, anti-phospholipase antibodies, cryoglobulins. We are going to do hepatitis panel, looking for hepatitis B and C, HIV. We are going to do uh, urine and plasma protein electrophoresis, looking for uh, levels of albumin, immunoglobulins, gamma globulins, etc. Also, we can order anti-GBM antibodies. GBM is glomerular basement membrane antibodies. And also ANCA, anti-neutrophil cytoplasmat cytoplasmic antibodies. Okay, those tests are going to be done to do the differential diagnosis. Okay, of course, other imaging studies, biopsy, okay, that can guide the therapy. And what is the management of proteinuria? This is a general management. Everything is going to depend on the disease that the patient has. For example, we can use AC inhibitors or ARBs, they are great. 
Okay, e either or, they work very good in people that have a persistent proteinuria of more than 300 milligrams per day. The target of the treatment is to reduce the proteinuria by 50%. Okay, that works great in people who have very important proteinuria. Those who have mild proteinuria don't see a very important reduction. Okay, important to check creatinine, potassium levels before giving ACE inhibitors to a person. Now, and this is a very new information, okay? There was a medication, okay? There are renin inhibitors, alisrein, it's called alisrein, okay? That, uh, there was a medication that was a combination of valsartan and a renin inhibitor that was very popular. Okay, it was removed from the market, okay, because it's demonstrated that the combination of AC inhibitors, ARBs, with renin inhibitors has very bad side effects, okay, produces hyperkalemia, produces hypotension, okay, syncope, renal impairment, so they have to be given not in combination. What about diuretics? We can give diuretics, but... If the patients have a fluid overload, proteinuria and fluid overload, of course, we are going to give this together with sodium restriction. Okay. Also, we can use aldosterone antagonists, very effective in patients that are already on AC inhibitors, ARBs, if necessary. But have in mind that the combination of AC inhibitors with uh, aldosterone, for example, can produce hyperkalemia and gynecomastia. So if they don't have uh, important hyperkalemia, it is okay, because this combination improves their mortality in patients with heart failure. Monitor potassium, of course. Now, combination of thiazides, this is a note, because Giving too many diuretics to people, and I've seen so many cases of people taking many different diuretics that I really, it's hard for me to understand. Okay, combination of thiazides and loop diuretics or aldosterone is something that has to be done very carefully. And when I see these patients that have several diuretics, each of these diuretics was prescribed by a different clinician. And maybe they don't have any idea of what the patient is taking. Okay. There is a very important risk of severe hypotension and electrolyte imbalance in these patients. Okay, so very, very careful with what the patients are already taking. When someone has edema because of hypoalbuminemia, someone has nephrotic syndrome or liver failure, for example, and they are losing albumin or they are not producing albumin, and we do aggressive diuresis. Remember, having hypoalbuminemia is a factor for the fluids in the blood vessels to move away. If we are giving also diuretics, we are forcing all the fluids away from the blood vessels, but they have a risk of developing acute renal failure because we are producing a depletion of the circulating volume. So very careful with these treatments. Another option for proteinuria is the use of calcium channel blockers. Okay, we have dil, diltiazem, verapamil, 
the non-dehydropyridine ones, okay, they are more effective in decreasing the proteinuria than the dehydropyridine uh, calcium channel blockers, for example. We have newer ones, Fonidipine, Venedipine, that are great in combination with ARBs, okay, to reduce proteinuria. Now, we're going to try to understand how we do the evaluation of the patients with uh, glomerulonephritis. We already mentioned these tests before. Okay, put them here so we remember we have to consider, okay, these tests when we are doing uh, the study of the glomerulonephritis. Okay, all these things uh, may help establish a diagnosis even without a biopsy. Okay, but the gold standard is going to be the biopsy always. Okay, when you have to answer these type of questions in exams, it is important to read very well. Okay, let's say um, you have a patient that they tell you has blood in the urine, hypertension, some mild edema in the legs, and is known to be an IV drug user or is in prison for 10 years and looks very bad, and this and that. The question may ask you, which of the following is the best next step in the diagnosis? And, well, besides the urinalysis, of course, and creatinine, urea, et cetera, besides the normal tests. Well, I would choose HIV, hepatitis, B and C panel, okay? Imagine that we are in an urgent care or in an out outpatient place. Okay, I wouldn't choose in that moment the renal biopsy because that's something that we don't do in the office and we don't do immediately. Probably you have to make an appointment with the nephrologist and go somewhere. But the most appropriate next step is HIV serology, hepatitis B, C. Now, the same question, the same vignette may come with the question that says, which of the following is the most accurate test to diagnose the condition? Because someone may be HIV positive or uh, uh, be positive for hepatitis and have something else, okay? So the most accurate is going to be always the biopsy. If the patient, instead of being an IV drug user, etc., is a 70-year-old with bone pain and constipation and abdominal pain, hmm, that looks more like a multiple myeloma. So. I think that the serum-free light chains is going to work better. If it's a 30-year-old woman with a malar rash, I think that the testing for lupus is going to be the best next step. Okay? If it's someone that has hemoptysis, I think that the anti-glomerular basement membrane antibodies is going to be best. Okay? And we're going to know how, how to do that, how to choose the best next step test, because there are some clues, okay, that suggest the most likely diagnosis, okay, having dyspnea, edema, a foamy urine that indicates the presence of proteins, okay, weight loss, hemoptysis, the history, the things in the physical exam, hypertension, edema, okay, different lab tests that we are going to be doing. Okay, we are going to uh, 
divide the conditions into inflammatory, non-inflammatory, nephritic, nephrotic, for example, because of the presence of these morphic cells or red blood cell casts. Okay, glomerular type hematuria suggests glomerulonephritis. Okay, the presence of hypertension, acute kidney injury, systemic inflammatory markers, albuminuria, pyuria. Okay, also, so yes, inflammation, but it's less specific for this uh, glomerulonephritis. Okay, so a biopsy, the immunofluorescence, is what is going to give us the final, the most accurate uh, diagnosis of the patient. Here we have some uh, pictures so we understand what are the things that we are talking about. These are these morphic red blood cells. And you may notice that they are really dysmorphic. Okay, for example, this one does, these cells that are pointed by the arrow that have like ears, like Mickey, Mickey Mouse in the, in the urine or something weird, extraterrestrial red blood cells. They are called acanthocytes. They have like vesicles, like protrusions. Okay, these deformations occur when the red blood cells type, try to move through a damaged glomerulus that has lots of inflammation and antibodies and complements, etc. Before considering that the patient has a glomerulonephritis and deciding what is, it's important to realize that there are some disorders that are mimics of glomerulonephritis. For example, outport syndrome. This is an X-linked disease that's going to be seen most commonly in men. And I say most commonly because there are other forms of Alport syndrome that can be autosomal dominant or recessive. And the most common one is X-linked. Okay, it's a defect in collagen type 4 okay, that leads to something that looks like nephritic syndrome, hematuria, may produce kidney failure, but also have, these people have hearing loss. Okay, and also eye abnormalities, structural abnormalities. You see the person is a male with these uh, characteristics of nephritic syndrome, but also hearing loss and even blindness. Okay, that is more likely Alport syndrome. Another mimic is people who are taking anticoagulants. Okay, excessive warfarin, for example. They are going to have glomerular hemorrhage. They may have kidney a red blood cell casts. Okay. You, if you do a biopsy in these patients, you are going to see the casts in the tubules, but the glomerulus is not going to be abnormal. There is not going to be any kind of photocyte effacement. You are not going to see any kind of antibodies binding to the glomerulus. You don't see any kind of mesangial cells hype expansion. You don't see sclerosis anywhere. And another condition is the one that is called thin basement membrane disease. This one is autosomal dominant. It's also a collagen defect. And these people are totally asymptomatic. The only thing they have is microscopic hematuria. Okay. Some of them may have a more uh, important hematuria and even may progress to renal failure. But small proportion of the patients. The familiar disorders, simply hematuria and nothing else. So there you have how they, uh, these things are seen in the electronic microscopy. You see the normal on the left, 
Okay, in the center you see the thin glomerular basement membrane disease. Okay. And then you have the Alport syndrome on the right. Now we are going to try to understand the differential. Where I put the. I put the table here, right? The diagram here. Oh, yeah. I was worried about my diagram. So, one of the conditions okay, that we are going to study more carefully is the acute post infectious. It's it's better to say post-infectious than post-streptococcal, because streptococcus is the most common agent producing this, but any infection okay, with streptococcus or other bacteria may produce it. Okay, this is a condition that is a type 3 hypersensitivity reaction. That means the bacteria is not present at that moment. We develop antibodies against the streptococcus. And then we have these immune complexes that will be deposited in the glomerulus. Okay, if you do a biopsy, okay, we are going to see hypercellularity in the glomerulus. Simply, we have many polymorphonuclear cells, neutrophils there. And if we do immunofluorescence, we are going to see a granular pattern. I told you that the immunofluorescence is very important for the differential. So. Targeting in your mind this pattern, granular, okay, in the capillaries, in the mesangial cells. And there is deposition of immunoglobulins of the type IgG, IgM, and also complement proteins 3. And if the proteins of the complement are in the glomerulus, and we test for complement levels in the blood, they are going to be low. Okay, we are going to measure complement levels, and we are going to find C3 complement levels low. If we do serology for anti-streptolysin O, it's going to be positive. And there is nothing we have to do with them. Simply supportive therapy, self resolves. Okay, there you see how the biopsy would look like. Many, many cells, which are neutrophils, polymorphonuclear cells. On the left, you can compare the normal glomerulus with the one in post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. These are the classic uh, findings. Okay, in the acute post-streptococcal GN, these are the deposits of immunoglobulin complexes and C3. Now, there is a condition that we have to be aware of. I told you this condition is self-limiting, supportive therapy, but we have to keep an eye on these patients. Even though most of these people do very well, sometimes they may progress to something that is called rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis. Rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis is not a disease. This may be a complication or a, the, the, of many other glomerulonephritis. Okay, not very commonly of post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. It's more common a complication of these conditions that we have here. Anti-glomerular basement membrane, antibody disease, and also of a group of diseases that are known as palsy-immune glomerulonephritis. We are going to understand what that means. Anti-GBM, 
Okay. It's a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction, not a type 3 as post-treptococcal glomerulonephritis. Okay, in which we develop antibodies against the basement membrane of the capillaries in the glomerulus and also the alveolar capillaries. Now, it doesn't manifest in everybody in the same way. In some people, only affects the kidney, and the name of the condition is that, anti-GBM antibody disease. And if it affects also the lungs, it is going to be called good pasture syndrome. And they are going to present with hemoptysis and even important lung hemorrhage that can lead to death. Now, if you make an immunofluorescence of these people, notice that these are antibodies against the basement membrane that forms a line under the endothelium. So we are going to see these antibodies in the immunofluorescence forming a linear pattern rather than a granular pattern, as we saw before in the post-treptococcal one. Now, what about the pausing mean? What does that mean? Pausing means little, few. Pausing immune means little or few antibodies. Okay, so if you make an immunofluorescence study, you don't see antibodies. You see very little amount of antibodies or a few antibodies. Okay, this is a group of conditions. Uh, I put here only the, the two more frequent, which are granulomatosis with polyangitis and microscopic polyangitis. Okay, if we do a biopsy, for example, we are going to see, we don't see these uh, uh, antibodies forming a line, but we are going to see a crescent formation, okay, material, okay, occupying this Bowman space, crescent-shaped deposition of fibrin, complement proteins, parietal cells, monocytes, macrophages. Okay, and we are going to do a... There are some antibodies that we use to differentiate between these two. For example, in granulomatosis with polyangitis, it's going to be C anca positive. And the microscopic polyangitis is going to have the P anca. So in both cases, they are going to be anca positive. Antinuclear antibodies. Antinuclear cytoplasmic antibodies. Anti-neutrophil anti cytoplasmic antibodies, my name. So how we treat these uh, patients? Patients with anti-GBM antibody disease. The treatment of the pausing immune is there, corticosteroid cyclophosphamide. I want to enter into more detail about the anti-GBM antibody disease. Okay, one of the first things we do is to try to eliminate the antibodies from the uh, circulation. For that, we can do plasmapheresis. Also, remove any offending agent that may have triggered the production of antibodies. Okay. And also, immunosuppression, to try to stop a further antibody production. Initial therapy is going to be cyclophosphamide. Okay, notice two milligrams per kilogram oral, trying to maintain a white blood cell count of only 5,000. Okay, we can use also prednisone. Okay, notice that we are inducing 
uh, leukocytopenia, giving lots of anti-inflammatory medications. If they have a life-threatening hemorrhage, we are going to use a stronger corticosteroid, methylprednisolone, one gram per day for three days. Cyclophosphamide has to be continued, notice two, three months, and the steroids for six months. If someone needs a longer time with immunosuppression, we can use azathioprine instead of cyclophosphamide. that has less adverse effects in the long term. When we are inducing immunosuppression, these patients are at risk of developing opportunistic infections. For example, PCP, pneumonia. Pneumocystis girovechiae pneumonia. In that case, we have to give trimetoprine sulfamethoxazole, okay, three times per week. Prophylaxis. Now, there you see the linear pattern that we can see in anti-GBM antibody disease. Don't forget the three patterns, please. Diffuse, granular, okay, that is the one in streptococcal one. The linear in anti-GBM disease or good pasture, and almost no antibodies detected in the pulse immune or ANCA positive. How can that information be used? Have a patient with glomerulonephritis. The biopsy shows almost no antibodies in the immunofluorescence. Which of the following will help establish the suspected diagnosis? And the options will be ANCA antibodies, anti-GBM antibodies, anti-streptolysin PO, or troponin, I don't know, something. And the answer in that case is ANCA antibodies, because this is a pause immune glomerulonephritis. Look at the lungs of someone with good pasture syndrome. This guy was admitted to the ICU with hemoptysis and acute kidney injury, 45-year-old. Okay, anti-GBM antibodies were positive, and there, there were long consolidations in the autopsy because of, of the extensive lung hemorrhage. Then we have other types of uh, glomerulonephritis. We have, for example, membrane proliferative glomerulonephritis. I want you to look at the differences for making or choosing the most likely diagnosis. Okay, this is a condition that presents, uh, because of deposits, okay, of complement proteins and immune complexes, that is secondary to hepatitis B or C, or due to the presence of something called C3 nephritic factor. Okay, these are a type of autoantibody that don't attack specifically any organ, but they induce the continuous activation of the complement. So different complement proteins are going to accumulate in the glomerulus. Okay? We are going to see uh, accumulations in the immunofluorescence. This is going to look like a tram track appearance. There's going to be thickening of the capillary wall because of the accumulation of this complement protein. And if they are in the kidney, they are not going to be found in the blood. So there is going to be a decrease of C3 and C4 complement proteins. In all the previous conditions that we saw, only C3 was low. Here we have C3 and C4. And we may find in the blood, if we test for it, 
the presence of C3 nephritic factor, or the patient may be positive for hepatitis. What is the treatment? What treats the hepatitis? Or the condition that is producing this? Then we have IgA nephropathy. If you have studied Shonlane henoch purpura vasculitis as a result of IgA deposition in the small blood vessels of the skin, this is exactly as Shonlane henoch purpura, but instead of being in the skin, it's in the kidney. It's a vasculitis in the kidney as a result of IgA deposition. This condition is known as Berger's disease. Okay, here the patient is going to have nephritic syndrome and upper respiratory, upper respiratory tract infection or gastrointestinal infection at the same time. Not like the post-streptococcal that occurs two weeks later. Okay, they are uh, concomitant at the same time occurring. And the treatment is simply give ACE inhibitors, ARBs, for the proteinuria, okay, treat the hypertension. And in the biopsy, we are going to see IgA, which is the name of the condition. Mesangial proliferation, maturia. We put this twice. This is the tram track appearance. Notice how it looks like having a double wall, the capillaries. Okay, this is a biopsy, like forming two separate layers. Okay, the deposits of these uh, antibodies, these immune deposits, separate the layers of the basement membrane, giving this appearance of a double uh, basement membrane. That's what they call tram tracking. Okay, so here we have these uh, biopsies, these immunofluorescences. Keep in mind these three things, the granular deposits, the linear deposits, anti-GBM, or the few or very little amount of deposits okay, that are seen in these ANCA-associated vasculitis. Okay, in the granular deposits, you have different things, posing infectious, Okay, the one that appears in lupus also forms granular deposits. IgA nephropathy as well, membrane uh, nephropathy as well, membrane proliferative glomerulonephritis. All of these form granular deposits. The ANCA associated few or no deposits, and linear, good pasture or anti-GBM antibody disease. So probably with this slide, you will have everything you need to consolidate, okay, the things that we have mentioned today about glomerulonephritis. Someone presents with hematuria, hypertension, nephritic range proteinuria less than 3.5, but important hematuria with red blood cells, uh, red, red blood cell casts, dysmorphic red blood cells, Okay, besides doing all the studies that we mentioned, we have to do a kidney biopsy and do immunofluorescence. Notice that there you have the three types of deposits, linear, granular, and minimal. 
Okay. If the deposits are minimal, that is likely a palsy immune glomerulonephritis anca associated. Notice that only 80% are going to be anca positive, so medicine is complicated because of this. What is the likelihood of if I find this, that the patient has that? Well, in this case, 80%. Now, linear deposits. Let's go to the simplest ones. Anti-GPM or good passion. Notice that 20% are going to be ANCA positive, so there is an overlap. Now, the more complicated is the granular deposits one. In that case, we have to analyze the complement. Sometimes the complement is normal. You don't have any reduction in complement levels. But that can be either IgA nephropathy or henoxone lane purpura that appears with palpable purpura. IgA nephropathy will have a concurrent upper respiratory tract infection at the same time, or GI infection. What about if the complement levels are decreased? Well, this can be due to infection, autoimmune disease, or cancer. What about infection? The, the infection can be in the past and already resolved. That is post-treptococcal. Or there can be a chronic infection. For example, hepatitis, HIV, or a bacterial infection like osteomyelitis, endocarditis, staphylococcus aureus. There can be autoimmune diseases, lupus, Chagrin syndrome, okay, or the presence of nephritic factor, C3 nephritic factor. People may have cancer, for example, lymphoma. Now, what if the patients, for example, uh, have a chronic infection with hepatitis or HIV. How do I know which one is the one that is producing? Or how do I know that this is, for example, hepatitis C without testing for uh, hepatitis C? There are some antibodies okay, that are called cryoglobulins. Okay, these are circulating immunoglobulins that precipitate in cold temperatures, temperature and dissolve or, or, or uh, dissolve with warming. Okay, they explain, for example, different conditions like Raynaud phenomenon. Okay, different uh, like ulcers, distal necrosis, or purpura or peripheral neuropathy appearing some arthralgia, some kidney disorders. So the presence of cryoglobulins. Patient test positive for cryoglobulins. This is likely to be hepatitis C in the case of chronic infections. But also may appear in people with Sjogren syndrome. Okay, these cryoglobulins. What else has cryoglobulins? Lymphoma, okay. Sjogren, lymphoma, and hepatitis C. You can use that information to create vignettes. Someone can give you, patient has hematuria, hypertension, etc. Complement levels are low. And the patient tests positive for cryoglobulins. And the options are lymphoma, IgA nephropathy, hepatitis B infection, or post-treptococcal. So the only one of that list that has positive cryoglobulins is lymphoma. And that's how you do a differential diagnosis in this case. 
I wish it was so easy in real life. And this is for next time. Thank you, Doctor. Come.